Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider history. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Today's episode, The Immortal Anthony Van Dyke. It's the winter of 1641 and we're in Blackfriars, London, where a 42-year-old man's health has rapidly deteriorated. He makes a will and prepares to meet his maker. The man is Flemish painter Anthony van Dyck, and through his enormous talent, he's already secured the visual immortality of many of the leading figures of the age. Finally, on the 9th of December, against the backdrop of growing tensions between Parliament and King Charles I, van Dyck breathes his last breath. Joining me today to tell the fascinating story of Anthony van Dyck is art historian and broadcaster, Dr. Bendor Grosvenor. Bendor, thank you so much for coming on Killing Time podcast. I've been wanting to get you on this show for so long. In fact, I always I want to get you on everything that I do because I just find your job and your work so interesting. Oh, so thank you. Marvelous. Good. Thank you. <laughs> and today we've, we've decided, because you are a font of all knowledge when it comes to art history so there could have been any number of artists to focus on but we've gone for van dyke today could you tell me why why is he the one that stands out for you well i'm sure there are people who know lots more about van dyke than i do but i would be up there at top of the tree of people who are obsessed with van dyke i mean i i just think he's the most fantastic painter as someone who who reinvents uh, the art of portraiture he has a a huge impact on British history, British art history. And to top it all, from what I can see from the records and, and his life, he seems to have been a, a lovely fellow too. So I, uh, over the years I've been interested in art history. I've really bonded with, with Antoon, as I call him. And it's a pleasure to talk about him today. Oh, well, I'm so pleased. Should we start at the beginning then? Could you take us right back to the early years of Van Dyke? And you said you call him Antoon. Yeah. Is that how it was pronounced? Well, there's various spellings depending on which sort of country you're in. I think uh-huh. sometimes it's Antonio... Antonius, um, but I just think Antoon would be my nickname for him. I have seen it written Antoon, but, uh, you know, um, in my dreams, uh, it's Antoon. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call him Antoon then. So <laughs> Antoon was born. Um, can you tell me how his life progressed, his early life? Uh, born in 1599, and he is the seventh child of 12. I think his dad was a draper. And that's interesting because whether by genes or design or by accident, he actually becomes one of the greatest painters of drapery, I think, in art history. But anyway, he becomes an artist from a very early age. And that's what I think is one of the most amazing things about artists, particularly at this time. So we're we're talking about a society in a world absolutely rigidly laid down by class and how you're born. But if you are a great artist you can just break through that immediately purely by the the skill in your wrist and your head and and antoon he does that which is i think is extraordinary his do you know his first signed professional work was when he was i think 12 or 13 depending on on how you count the dates but um, that that's pretty amazing and i've seen it it's a really really good portrait at, just when he was 12 in oil. So he probably sort of told himself, I think actually his mother was quite good at flower painting. So it was a it was a family practice. But he, he obviously had a sort of, uh, you know, a, a Mozart-like gift with a brush from a very early age. That's so interesting to me, because obviously, you only know you're a good painter if you have access to paint and canvas. So his father was not a painter. But as you say, if, if his mother was the one perhaps that facilitated this interest, then... 
that's really interesting when we think about the the dynamics within families because quite often you hear of male artists and then their son becomes a, an artist after them and you have these kind of father-son dynasties particularly in the 17th century so that's interesting to me is that unusual from your from your point of view for him to have become a painter and his father not be one i think one of the the things about art that the the, um, the ability to paint brilliantly is it is it kind of just sort of happens by magic and sometimes it doesn't descend like uh, so many other trades do. I mean, uh, another example in, in Britain anyway, in the 18th century, is Thomas Lawrence, young Sir Thomas Lawrence, who becomes president of the Royal Academy. And for my money, is probably the most naturally gifted British artist when it comes to handling oil paint. He could do it like, uh, you know, like you and I breathe. He could just do it. Now, he, he was the son of a publican, and he was doing professional portraits from, I think, practically the age of seven or eight. And, you know, a little bit like... Mozart, perhaps the, these people can just come along and they can they somehow can do it. Prodigies, because of the um the very you know the difficult situation of so many families at the time, they were they were pressed into service uh, to to raise money for the family as as Lawrence and Van Dyke were. So um, the the pressure was on from a very early age if you had a natural talent. Okay, so he creates his first portrait then at the age of twelve or thirteen. Well, the first one that we know of, and then. Then what happens? Uh, he becomes uh, he's a, um, an apprentice to an artist called Henry van Baalen, who paints little sort of uh, Bruegel-like pictures of uh, lots of little tiny figures doing busy and exciting things in landscapes. I mean, they're they're interesting, but they're not they're not fantastic in terms of the great sweep of art history. Uh, and it's interesting that Van Dyck doesn't really sort of assume much of that style. <laughs> he emerges like fully formed out of, of of the chrysalis, painting in his own way. Then, uh, in about 1618, he becomes uh, registered as an independent artist in the guild in Antwerp. Uh, but also at that time, he works in Peter Paul Rubens' studio. Now, Rubens in Antwerp in 1618 is the Don. You know, he's the godfather of art uh, in Flanders. And if you were good, uh, he had a huge factory workshop, relied on good assistance, and Van Dyck quickly becomes his best assistant. He's he's sometimes called a, a pupil of Rubens. I don't think that's right. I think he's he just sort of fits in as a professional assistant from the beginning. Am I right in thinking that Van Dyck, or Antoon, <laughs> was a little bit older when he was apprentice slash became his assistant? He was older than you would expect for somebody in that setting, or is that just not true? I suppose Van Dyck could have entered Rubens' studio as an apprentice, like he did Van Barlen's, but the sources are a little bit unclear, but it looks like from very early on, Rubens refers to Van Dyck as his very best assistant. And Rubens, you know, he, he has this, as I said, enormous factory. He has so much demand on his time. Uh, and he's a little bit naughty, old Rubens, in that he does rely quite extensively on studio assistants. Now, the depth of artistic talent at the time in Flanders was such that you could get away with it because there were people like Van Dyck around who could paint in your style and, and the patrons might not really know the difference. I think one of the reasons that Rubens really loves having Van Dyck work for him is that he's the, uh, Van Dyck is a master of mimicry in paint and he can, uh, he can sort of become like Rubens on the canvas and, and that, that is obviously a very attractive quality for Rubens. Has that proved problematic with regards to making attributes Attributions to Rubens. Have there, has there been any crossovers or mistaken um, attributions when it's actually Van Dyck rather than Rubens? Oh yes, happens all the time. And I think that's part of the fun, actually, for someone like me. If you get your eye in, you can. I, well, perhaps we'll never know. But I flatter myself that if if you if you spend enough time looking at one of the pictures that Van Dyck we know worked on when he was with Rubens, you you can you could just about see you could just about see if you really 
if you really think about it, uh, where, where the artists change hands. For example, in the, in the Liechtenstein collection, there's this big series of pictures called the Decius Mus pictures, and we, we think Van Dyck worked on those. And, I, and one of, the, one of the, the most funs I've had in my art historical journeys was standing in front of those pictures in Vienna with my binoculars, um, just kind of like a real anorak trying to spot <laughs> spot where the artists change. So what what are the tells then when you're doing this detective work? What are Van Dyke's tells? Well, the interesting thing about young Van Dyke, and I, I think this is a this is a you you can often see this in artists when they're when they're young. He paints a little bit more thickly with his paint. So Rubens by now is mature, knows what he's doing, can do things quickly and doesn't seem to require as much paint. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it greatly. Whereas uh, Van Dyck's early works, although they're really like Rubens, is a little bit more sculptural with his paint, is a little bit more thickly applied. It's, it's, I, I think he's taking greater care and, and greater pleasure too in the application of the paint. I see. OK, well, let's kind of go outwards a little bit now. Let's take a big kind of macro look at the, the art world around this time. So we know we've got Rubens, Van Dyck as Flemish artists. We know that there's kind of a hub of activity when it comes to art there. But could you paint a picture, pretend I don't know anything, which is kind of true, um, and paint a picture of the art scene as it was during that early part of the 17th century? Well, we're, we're dealing in a world of monarchies and, and princes and dukes uh, and very rigid class structures and vast wealth inequality uh, and one of the things these people loved to do with their riches was depict themselves in ever more you might say ridiculous they would say glorious representations so artists were key to that and of course we've got the question of religious art as well so the catholic church has, has always been uh, big into uh, the use of images in art going right back to uh, Gregory the First was was the one who he sent Saint Augustine to to Britain in um, five nine seven. He specifically says, "Take pictures with you because these are useful for uh, spreading the word." So th there's a vast demand for artists at the time, and then uh, by the time Van Dyck comes along in the early 17th century, we've got the Reformation underway and a literal kind of artistic battles between the Catholic Church and the Reformed Church for the for your soul and and art was a key part of that as far as the catholic church was concerned uh Antoon, a good catholic rubens a good catholic um and they did their bit and and painted beautiful religious pictures so so art is in constant demand and uh, van dyck in the early 17th century has vast examples of great artists to to choose from uh, in flanders obviously rubens uh, but then in 1621 he he gets itchy feet van dyck and he decides to go to italy which is which is the kind of you know the center point where um, artistic brilliance was, was seen to be emanating from. So Van Dyck goes to Italy, and uh, we're so lucky because we have his surviving sketchbook in the British Museum, and we can see all the things that he admired and did little doodles of to record on his travels. And the artist he was most obsessed with was Titian, who was the, the great portraitist of the uh, 16th century. So there, there's so much for him to, to learn from and absorb. I just love that idea because we, we're so, we're, we live in such a visual culture. I mean, it's always been a visual culture, but we can look at images immediately. Like I, it just, it's one click on my laptop. It's so easy. But the notion that you would have somebody who would become one of the greatest artists probably of all time, Van Dyck, it, he would have to travel great distances just to see an original work by Titian. It's just incredible to think that, that it's a long, long process for him to build up his kind of mental reference points when it comes to previous art. Yeah, and you can see he really enjoyed doing it from his, his sketchbook. And you can see the, gr the growing impact of Titian on his work as he... Uh, moves around Italy. It's really uh, fascinating to chart the kind of the absorption 
uh, of Van Dyck as he as he opens his eyes to other great artists. But of course, he would have had access um, even before he left uh, to great collections of, of people like the Archduke uh, Ferdinand, I think was his name. Anyway, so there were pictures already then being collected from as far, far afield as Italy. So he would have had some access to them. But um, obviously, he was not the first, and nor certainly the last artist to go on uh, what came to be called uh, a grand tour as part of his sort of formative education, really. So he does this this grand tour, must have returned a changed man, picked up lots of skills, lots of inspiration. Where does it, where, at what point does he move to England? Do we have more going on before that point, or, or is the move to England fairly swift after Italy? Um, he comes back from Italy, I think, 1627, and then he's a kind of set fair as an uh, independent artist in Antwerp. Slightly in competition, actually, we think, with Rubens. And then in 1632, he is lured to London by King Charles I. There's various kind of attempts to get him here. I mean, he did actually, I think he came in 1621 briefly for James I and VI, but he, he obviously didn't like what he saw and he didn't come back. And uh, Charles sends his, uh, his sort of court musician, Nicholas Lanier, to Antwerp to sit for Van Dyck. And obviously some sort of blandishments are are um, held out. So, for example, he's given a knighthood, Sir Anthony Van Dyke. Well, before he's done anything. Well, I think it's kind of, co- you know, it kind of the minute he got here, he was made Sir Anthony. So it must have been part right. of the deal. He gets a pension. He gets a lovely apartment in Eltham Palace, Royal Palace. He gets a studio in Blackfriars. And, and off he goes, and a pension, an annual pension, I think, of £100 a year. Now, I think what's interesting about that kind of the... Um, the golden handshake that had to be held out to get him here. It was just what a kind of sort of artistic backwater England, poor old England then was. I mean, I, we sort of presented a picture of Europe being this great, amazing place of, of artists and, and wonders to see. But England um, was very much not uh, at the time, mainly for which we can blame uh, Henry VIII. And the English weren't really that sort of interested in art. So Van Dyck comes along principally at the behest of Charles I, who was obsessed with art. So Charles is, my understanding of his obsession with art, obviously he, he would have had m- more access to pieces of art than anyone else probably in the land. But then he travelled he, he to Spain, so he's seen lots of Catholic art as well. So he has Van Dyck within his court, w- within his pay. What are his first early paintings under the patronage of Charles I? Uh, well, there's this thing called the Great Peace, which is a, a vast canvas still in the Royal Collection of Charles I and Henrietta Maria with their two, then two eldest children. And, and the idea was to kind of depict Charles as the father figure of the nation. So we, we should be honest and say this is, this is all propaganda. So Van Dyck is you know, participating in an effort to artistically sort of boost Charles I and his um, reputation. Uh, Charles was a tiny fellow, uh, but he liked to be portrayed as bigger than he was and more powerful than he was. But eventually, of course, the um, reality and image don't quite match up and it all goes horribly wrong. But Van Dyck was there to kind of garland the image of Charles. And that was one of the first things he did. He ch- and he churns out loads and loads of portraits of, of the king, the queen and their children. And uh, the thing I love about the great piece is it's quite informal. So they're sitting, the king and queen are sitting down. The kids are not, they're not sort of running around playing uh, Jenga. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're not kind of held up as formal m- mannequins. I think it was deliberately an evolution. I don't know if you if you could picture in your mind Hans Holbein's great Whitehall picture of Henry VIII um, yes, and his yes. wife, and behind him Henry VII and um, Jane Seymour, and and so there was a kind of tradition of of needing, obviously good portraitists because that kind of pictorial propaganda doesn't work unless you've got really good portraitists. You can do it for you. There was a tradition of of using uh, the walls of the palace to kind of impress upon visitors 
who would have been, you know, everybody from foreign diplomats to, to English nobles, to impress upon them that the person you were about to see or whose instruction you were going to take was this, this impressive figure. Uh, and that is what Antoon brings to the to the to the party. I'm looking at the picture now, and I just want to make sure I'm looking at the right one. So it's the 1632 picture. That's right. You can see. Um, you, I think you can see bits of Westminster in the background. Yeah. yeah. What you're saying is absolutely right, and you can see that. But what's also fascinating from my kind of amateur eye is that you get that sense of power, and also the drapery, as you mentioned before. <laughs> mm. But it looks very domestic as well. Yeah. Yeah. Which and human is that a theme that we see with Van Dyke? Well, I think Van Dyke was such a good portraitist that he, if he wanted to, he could paint people in real settings. I mean, I think sometimes sometimes portraitists can can end up making people look too stiff and formal, and that's partly at the best of the sitter, but partly because the artist isn't able to kind of, you know, make the limbs and the and the and the clothes flexible enough to look like there's a person actually living and breathing and moving within them. Uh, but Van Dyke can do that. And I think that's, you know, that's what he really brings to, to British portraitists. The kind of, uh, it's the sort of, it's the moment British art gets up and walks because previously it had been dominated by artists who simply weren't very good. But I think probably Charles I had some input too because he was keen on this idea of the royal family being the nation's family. So I, I think both artist and patron were at work in, in this picture. Yeah, and also you, we need to remember as well, I guess, that we're not too far from the long reign of Elizabeth I. So showing that you have a, a healthy family, you know, you're obviously fertile, your wife is capable of having more children is a very important thing to portray as well. Yeah, no, that's a really important point. It was, you know, there, there had been a, a long and recent and unpleasant history of dynastic uncertainty. Um, and here was Charles saying, uh, you don't need to worry about that with me. Exactly. Could you talk me through some of the key, I mean, there's so many, I, love, I don't know the name of the piece of art, but the triple headshot of Charles. But could you talk me through some key pieces of art when it comes to Van Dyke? Oh, yeah, well, there's so many. One that springs to mind immediately is the, it's in the National Gallery. It's an enormous equestrian portrait of Charles I. And the horse is, is this great, I think it's called a dun horse. It's sort of brown and rippling with muscles. And I think most people, when they see it, go, oh, he hasn't done the horse very well. The head's too big. But Van Dyck, you know, he, he could paint anything. And he was actually a very good equestrian artist, too. In this case, the horse is, is a fighting horse. It's one of those ones that's been bred to be marched into battle. Uh, so that's why it's, it's rippling with muscles. And it seems to have an unusually thick neck. And the idea is that Van Dyck was painting Charles in complete control of this powerful horse. So if you look at the picture of Charles I is controlling it with just one hand, one arm. And if you look really, really closely, you can see that the horse's mouth is foaming a bit. And so this, this sort of conceit of Charles, this quite slight figure, being able to effortlessly control the beast beneath him, which was the nation, of course, is there for all to see. And the National Gallery has recently cleaned this picture and it just looks absolutely fantastic. It's knockout stuff. So if we look at his well not look because this is a podcast but if you google listeners later you'll be able to see these things as well. But if we think about his collection of art, his the things he was interested in, is there a way of breaking it down? So could we say that perhaps he, you know, he did portraiture and then maybe religious images i mean what would how would you break down his um what's the word i'm looking for repertoire rep, rep, i think uh, i think in art history we would say oeuvre and i uh, oeuvre. Yeah, it's, a, okay. it's always one i struggle <laughs> to pronounce it's a <laughs> 
it's yeah is 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 um yeah obviously so before he comes to england it's still mostly portraits but religious art and um, historical uh, mythological scenes take up a large part of his output but when he comes to england from 1632 onwards obviously uh, we've had the reformation we don't really do religious art anymore um so that it's almost exclusively sitters portrait sitters and you, you know we don't have a evidence from van dyke himself in a documentary sense that he tired of this but, but there's plenty of other uh, British portraitists who who we who felt the same, and we can assume that Van Dyke uh, did too. So uh, Gainsborough later on in the 18th century, for example, talks about the wretchedness of face painting all day, and he can't wait till he can go and paint landscapes in in the afternoon and the early evening. And and I think one of the interesting things about Van Dyke when he comes to England, he's here for nine years. I think y you can kind of chart over that period the slight decline if we're honest about it as as dedicated as an antune fan that i am you can say that in the time he was here his art got worse and i think there's two reasons partly the assistance available to him in in england were not very good not as good as his his ones in flanders because uh, we didn't have that artistic tradition here but the more alarming thing for the, the great course of British art history is that we weren't really that interested in art and we couldn't tell the difference between a good picture and a bad one so Van Dyke kind of increasingly, you get the sense that he knows he can get away with it. You know, he's not really going to put that much effort into this bit of drapery. He'll let the assistant do that one. You know, he'll, he still does the, the head and the hands himself. And there's, in fact, uh, there is the, uh, one of the very few uh, genuine art history jokes, Rebecca, about Van Dyke and his hands. And somebody asked him once, uh, Sir Anthony, uh, why do you pay so much attention to your sitter's hands? And he said, well, the hands pay the bill. <laughs> boom, boom. Um, I like so, it. I like yeah, it. It's always, always a good. Uh, if you, if you're trying to attribute a, a, a possible Van Dyke, look at the hands. It's always a giveaway. Right. Okay. I'm going to remember that as well. But before we move on, because I do want to talk about his studio a little bit more. But before we get to that point, can you tell me a little bit about his his private life? You said that he seemed to be a lovely person. What what gives you that sense? And was he married? Did he have a family? Uh, well, he marries late in 1640, Mary Ruthven. But he, he didn't marry before that. But we know he had an illegitimate child. I think she's called Henrietta. She was born in Flanders. And, in, and she's mentioned in, in one of his early wills. Uh, and his, I think his sister is is looking after um, his illegitimate daughter. But no, I ju I just sort of perhaps I, I'm I've just become such a, f a fan of Van Dyke that I am biased into uh, persuading myself that he was a nice person. But I I think there is an absence of bad behaviour from him that we can. Right. I, so I think perhaps I'm I'm basing my judgment on that. But just in the way in some of his writings, he just seems to have been quite amusing. He was evidently good company. I think he would have been good fun at dinner party. He liked his music. He loved to do you know landscape pictures. He, there's there's examples of little watercolour. So it's, you just get the sense with him that wherever he went he was interested to record and explore what was going on in the world and I think if that's your baseline personality you're going to be a good person. I understand that get the absence of negative behavior because we do hear about it with artists when they're not exactly nice people Caravaggio springs to mind immediately. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so that's that's interesting then that's kind of tragic as well that he married in 1640 but we'll come to that shortly but first of all just going back to his studio then so it's in Blackfriars he has all of these assistants apprentices were there any 
English assistants there? Did he did he nurture any homegrown talent, or were they were they mainly of Flemish origin? I don't think we know for a hundred percent certainty the names of anyone in his studio. There's kind of we can put pieces of the puzzle together. So there's various people like uh, Remigius van Leenput. Now he was probably from Flanders, but I think there's a person called Old Stone later on, Henry Stone. We think he was English. We think he was in the studio. Um, so so there would have been you know there would have been local talent available to him and and the great mystery of course is William Dobson who is the kind of the successor to Van Dyke paints Charles I during the Civil War in the in the exile court in Oxford he's the first great sort of British artist William Dobson and obviously he assumes the Van Dyke style so the question is did he work in the studio and he learned it there or was that just uh, did Van Dyke style so become the kind of dominant mode that Dobson had no choice but to paint in it um, unfortunately, we don't yet know. Would we ever know? How would we find out? Well, you know, there's always hope some document will turn up somewhere. Yeah, I suppose. So, OK, say I'm an aristocratic lady. I'm. You're going to have to use lots of imagination here. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm in the 17th century. I want to have my portrait painted by Van Dyck. What would be the normal process for somebody that wanted to have a piece of art from him? And how much would they have to pay, if you know? Um, I should know, shouldn't I, how much I have to pay? Um, I can't remember, yeah. But it, was, it wasn't cheap. First of all, you would go for a, a sort of introductory sitting and you would have a, a drawing and whom would do a drawing of you. And you would probably discuss your pose and what you're going to wear. Um, and then there would be probably two or three at least further sittings where he would start to paint you in oil. There would be a costume left in the studio for him and his assistants to work up. Um, oh. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's kind of, it's it, there's an efficient use of time going on. And then uh, you would you would get the finished goods. Um, now, this is, there's a great myth, uh, I think it's a myth, based on this one piece of evidence, at least, uh, that Van Dyke flattered his sitters. But there was a sitter whose name I've now ashamedly just forgotten. But she does, she, there's a letter which she writes to a friend of hers complaining about Van Dyke making her look uh, so fat and, and unpleasant that she insists that she repaints it. <laughs> <laughs> to make her oh, look, wow. to make her look slimmer, she says, uh, "Verily, he did make my cheeks look as though the winds were puffing, something like that." Um, <laughs> and so she sends it back. We don't know if he did repaint it, but anyway, I think you know. I think that's that's obviously one of the great questions about a portrait artist: is to what extent are their pictures that we see today accurate and faithful representations of the people alive at the time? And it's there's always a contest between artist and and sitter but I think with Van Dyke it's it's a pretty faithful representation the faces look different as well so you get someone like Lily yeah, you're quite that's a good observation yet yeah, um, I think Samuel Pepys says that of Lily's sitters he says uh, they're good but not like they they tend to look a little bit similar I mean I, I like Peter uh, he was good but but Van Dyke he, he he rarely draws the same face twice and and I think that's a that's a great skill because if you're a portrait artist and you're painting sitters day in day out, it's quite easy to fall into the pattern of basically constructing your faces in the same way every time. But you don't get that with Van Dyke, which I think is why he's one of the best portraits there ever was. You don't, but one thing you do get with him, he is the master of the side eye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's it's unfortunate that he was painting in the time he was because you just get this sense about, uh, that everybody is so sort of hidebound and and class ridden. You just wish occasionally they would crack a smile. But I, I suppose he did the best he could. He did, he did. I've got a, a question because of your point on smiles, but this is not related to Van Dyke. But when did people start smiling in paintings? I think you, you do see smiles, obviously, in kind of what they call subject pictures uh, from quite early on. But in portraits, it's very rare. I'm just thinking of a portrait I sold to the National Portrait Gallery of Scotland by William Aikman. 
of a fiddler, a famous musician at the time who was called Patty Burney, who lived just outside Edinburgh. Uh, so that's uh, 1740s, and that was really notable because okay. he's smiling. You can see his teeth. But I think that's mainly to try and show him as a as kind of musician. So so it's not till much later on you, you see sitters regularly smiling. Uh, not least, uh, there's two reasons. Um, the first is that... Uh, uh, adopting a pose of a smile, <laughs> I think, is quite tricky for a long period of time. Um, <laughs> but but uh, secondly, is that they often had very bad teeth, so you you wouldn't really want to show off your um your sugar rotted gnashes. No, you wouldn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that makes sense now. That makes sense. So we're getting close to the time of his death. Can you tell me what happens? He's so. There's two two things seem to happen at the same time. Uh, the first is that he obviously decides, I think he decides he wants to get out. So he marries in 1640, but already then he's applied for a passport to leave. And obviously, I think he could see the writing on the wall in terms of uh, the civil war breaking out um, yeah. and didn't fancy uh, much of that anymore. And, you know, he'd, he'd done a good shift here. and he, He's only 40 and he wants to, to go somewhere else. He, he does seem to have been a person who had itchy feet but then he gets ill and um, we don't know what he got ill of but it was quite a prolonged illness first of all he he goes to Antwerp uh, looking for business there and the Cardinal Infanta says um, that he he offered uh, Van Dyck the job of of finishing a number of pictures that that Rubens had begun for him but left unfinished in the studio and Van Dyck says I <laughs> I'm not doing that, partly because he probably resented having to finish someone else's work. But the, the Cardinal Infanta writes of, of Van Dyck and says that he was basically behaving a bit like a madman. So we're not sure about Van Dyck's mental health at the time. And then he goes to Paris uh, and tries to get some work with the King of France and Cardinal Richelieu. I think he's in the running for doing a huge uh, ceiling painting in the Louvre. And it seems to get the job. Uh, so there's plans to go to Paris. But unfortunately, he becomes so ill that he, in the end, he has to come back to England because his, his wife is pregnant. Um, his house is still here. He hasn't packed up anything yet. And then it all goes it goes downhill very tragically and very quickly. There, there is a mystery there, isn't there, about what this illness might have been, especially if he's been reported as being, quote-unquote, mad. So could you tell me about his final days? Well, it, it seems to be really quite tragic. His daughter, Justina, is born on the 1st of December, but then on the 4th of December he signs his will. Uh, so we clear that by that time he knew he was very ill. And then on the 9th of December uh, he dies, which is the same day that his daughter was baptised. So it's really quite sad. And then things kind of fall apart. For his family too so there's this there's this terrible lawsuit which basically goes on for the whole of his daughter's life trying to take away his estate and he had he had a great collection he had all sorts of petitions of his own for example um oh. and uh poor old justina is is sued by various people and she she loses um ends up with very little so and this so often happens with artists doesn't it that they can get glory and fame in their lifetime and then sudden suddenly uh, all their worldly goods just disappear and their and their families are left with nothing so he passes away 1641 but you we we've spoken about this and alluded to this throughout the podcast because his influence was huge but could you just detail his his legacy well i think uh, charles the first puts a inscription on his monument in st paul's cathedral which says uh, here lies van dyke who while he lived gave immortality to many. And I think that just about sums it up perfectly. There are occasionally artists in history who allow us to kind of swing a lamp onto a period of history and kind of illuminate it 
in a way that we just can't do for other periods. So it's, for example, we have Holbein and the Tudors, and it's Van Dyck and, and the Stuarts and, this, and that sort of period up to the Civil War. So, so suddenly these people are alive again, and that's, I think, uh, his, his legacy for us. Also, there's the kind of the added epilogue to his story that you said those lovely words that Charles I had said about him after he died, but he was buried in St Paul's Cathedral, the old St Paul's Cathedral, and then in 1666, his was one of the graves that was destroyed in the fire. Yes, and if you go to um, the the crypt of St Paul's, where the artists are kind of since been buried, the great British artists, there have been various attempts to sort of recreate the memorials of, of artists who were buried there before. And there is one to Van Dyck, and it's got a portrait bust of him, and it is atrociously bad. It's really oh, no. embarrassingly bad, and it's... <laughs> It seems such an unfortunate legacy for the <laughs> the greatest portraitist who ever came to Britain. Oh dear, that irony. <laughs> well, <laughs> but his other legacy, of course, is is he he kind of recreates the template for British art, and because he's the first person who comes along and and kind of literally makes British sitters seem alive, he's the first one who can create a sense of movement in pictures. Compare, uh, for example, all those stiff pictures of Elizabeth I. So so Van Dyck makes people come alive, and and that really reboots. British art. Obviously, we don't have religious art here. We we can't paint God, so we paint ourselves. So British art history is, is basically, for the next two or three hundred years, is all about portraiture. Um, occasionally, we might get excited about painting horses too. But but Van Dyck kind of sets the template. And that lasts right up to people like, you know, Singer Sargent. You know, they're all kind of <laughs> variations of what Van Dyck pioneered. Thank you. It's been really interesting to talk to you about Van Dyke. I just wanted to ask you, because I love following your Twitter account, and I love all the mysteries and the insights you give into the art world. Are there any mysteries going on right now? Is there anything we should be excited about in the art world? Anything that's coming up for sale that's intriguing? Uh, oh, there's always something coming up. I mean, I'm I, I'm working on a few things. I've always got a few things that on the go. I used to be an art dealer. I'm not a dealer anymore, so I'm sort of, I don't turn discoveries out as... Um, as, as often as I used to. Uh, there's a, I tell you, there's something very interesting. There's uh, going to be a new rehang at Tate Britain opening very soon. In fact, I think the kind of the classic art, the historic side of it is already open. You can go and have a look. And I've got one painting there on loan, which is by um, a female 17th century artist uh, called Anne Killigrew. And there's another picture of a, by a, a female 17th century artist called Joan Carlyle, which I sold to the Tate some years ago. Um, and it, it, it's it's very exciting this rehang because it's all it's part of a very belated shift in the museum world and in art history generally to uh, to actually appreciate and shout about the quite surprisingly large number of female artists who were at work in this particular period we're talking about too the 17th century but throughout art history and the new rehang is going to put women um, artists uh, back in their in their rightful place and it's from what I've seen so far it's been done really well and I think it'd be well worth a visit oh that's exciting I will make a note of that because I'm yeah I love that do they have Mary Beale oh there's yes they've got a whole load of Mary Beals on display and, and I love Mary Beale too it's such it's it's really nice actually to see uh, her works and these other works there because it they're refreshingly different to the kind of um, the parade of Lilies and Nellas that you you tend to see oh well thank you so much for that Bendor it's been really interesting talking to you great pleasure thanks for having me on it was good fun many of those who'd sat for Van Dyke would find themselves caught up in the horrors of the civil wars which broke out in England in 1642 Van Dyck's patron, Charles I himself, would be executed just over seven years later. It's a story that we'll pick up in the penultimate episode of this series. Thank you for listening.